All right, here we are again. We're not going to review this whole sixth principle of the difference between interpretation and application. We already went through that. Last week I mentioned that I added a couple things, so I just wanted to show you that just to uh, be consistent. So, again, the focus of interpretation versus application has to do with the meaning of the text. You need to apply the, the meaning and not the words. We looked at Second Chronicles 7. Often the words are applied there, but uh, the meaning is something entirely different than the way people usually use it. So personal application has to follow objective interpretation. You can't know how a passage applies to you until you know what the passage actually means. So you have to do the interpretation before you can do the application. And I emphasized this book by Richard Schultz, Out of Context, which uh, indicates how this works, basically. And then and this is what I added, the, the caution of how to apply the Bible. That's the, the title of a book. And as I mentioned last time, the guy comes up, he has a system for finding applications. And I'm thinking, applications are not systematic. They're more organic. As you're reading, the Holy Spirit tells you how to apply this. So that's just what I added there. We, went, we did this one as well, so we're just going to zip through this one, the awareness of the Bible version priorities. If you're going to interpret, you're going to need to know what kind of version of the Bible you have because they emphasize different things. Okay? And we did this last week without the slides because the stupid thing wasn't working. So I'll show you the slides. Because there's some stuff on there that we went over, but little visual helps. So you have different categories, like the people choose because of the history of the translation and uh, maybe familiarity with it, like the King James and the New King James. You know, it was the primary translation for three, four hundred years. So uh, people are used to it comfortable with it. Then you have the grammar-focused Bibles like the New American Standard, the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, affectionately known as the CSB. And the way it works for these kinds of translations, the, the original language grammar is translated into the target language grammar. So these translations are close to the way the original is written. That makes for a little bit awkward reading in English because Greek and Hebrew grammar are different from English grammar. They're not directly parallel. The words you can figure out the parallels in the words, but sentence structure and things like that are going to be different. But these Bibles are closest to the original as far as structure goes, so you can get kind of a good idea of how the the words go together to form the sentences to give you the meaning of the text. Then you have Bibles that are focused on more on ideas, and these are kind of interpretive. I hate calling these translations because they don't really translate. What they do is they take the idea from the original, and then they filter it through their theological perspective and put it into an English idea. You know, this is the idea in the original, and this is how we would say it in English. 
but they kind of fool around with it in between those. They, their, their theological um, perspective impacts the final result of that. It depends on the, the version you have. That's why you have to be careful. So New American Standard and the ESV and the, the Holman, they go back to the original. The NIV went back to the original. It was a new translation, but again, not really a translation, but an interpretation. Because yeah. a translation says this is the word in the, the original language, and that equivalent is this word in this language. But the NIV and the other idea-oriented... Would you use the NIV to preach? I wouldn't. Because those idea Bibles, they, well, they take... if you were preaching topically. <laughs> <laughs> no but they don't translate, okay? They interpret. They kind of tell you what it means instead of just saying, this is what it says here, and this is what it means here. This is what it says here, and this is what we think it means. Now, other versions do, like some of these paraphrases, and I think that's the next one we get to here. Yeah, the paraphrases, some of those are taken right from the English Bible, the, the King James. And they just put it in modern English instead of King James English. Yeah, yeah. And basically, the process there is they take the idea from the original and then they put it in an English idiomatic language. This is a little less formal than like the NIV and others like that because they kind of use formal English. But the paraphrases put it in street language English, English idioms or idiomatic English. So if that's the smoothest reading of all, but it's also the least accurate. Because again, they're dealing just with the ideas. They're not reflecting the original structure. Meaning comes from structure. An analogy I think of that's, that's relevant to me, it may not be to you, is the change in American music in the late 40s, early 50s and on, in jazz specifically. You know, you had big band jazz, which made sense. And then you get into bebop and, and cool jazz and all that. And you think, what are they doing? There's no structure there. Okay? There's no meaning. It's just miscellaneous sounds coming out of those instruments. Now they, in their minds, are playing around with those sounds and how they relate. So they're experimenting with things and everybody says, oh, isn't that creative? Yeah, but it doesn't mean anything. There's no structure there. You know, a song has a beginning, has a middle, has an end. You know, you take away the beginning, the middle, and the end, and it doesn't mean anything. Same with these translations, these different versions. Once you get away from the original structure, then you, you, you're sacrificing meaning. As I mentioned before, you may want to have more than one version for different purposes. 
one for doing your study so you can get the meaning and stuff, another one for casual reading, or maybe another one for devotional reading. They're there, you know. If they appeal to you in one way or another, then use them. And this website, if you can read it, will get you to that sheet that I handed out on the different versions and what they uh, emphasize. This one here, a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with that, that evangelicalbible.com, which is the first part, if you go that, that's the home page, you don't go anywhere after that. You try it. The page comes up and it is minute printing. You can't even read it and you can't make it bigger. There are links there, but you have no idea where they go because you can't read it. There's one I found that did, said sign in. But. So if you want to get to that page, you need this whole thing, and that'll take you right to that page. Yeah, it's evangelicalbible.com slash WP hyphen content slash uploads slash 2019 slash 05 slash English and then underscore Bible underscore history 5.19. PNG. I have no idea what that means. I should have, uh, I guess, put that email address on its own slide. <laughs> Blow it up. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't think about that until now. And that's a slide of the chart we went over last week, so you can't read it from here anyway. Okay, new principle principle of verification. Once you have gone through the, the hermeneutical process and come up with an interpretation of a passage, you want to verify it. You want to be sure you're right. So how do you do that? Good question. I'm glad you asked. We'll go over that. There's a basic principle involved here, and that is that systematic doctrines, science, cross-references, history, etc., all show whether or not any interpretation is consistent with the rest of Scripture, and so correct. The rest of the um, principles, there are 12 of them, were on number 8. The rest of them deal with the same kind of thing, but from different perspectives for different reasons. Okay, In this case, we're talking about verifying, being sure that your understanding of a passage is correct. It has to match the rest of Scripture, basically. It has to be consistent. Uh, science and history obviously are not part of Scripture, but you, if, if you're interpreting a passage of Scripture that deals with science or history, you, your interpretation has to be consistent with science and history. You can't say that this passage of Scripture that deals with science means one thing when science clearly says it doesn't mean that. So it's got to be consistent. So consistency is the basic principle there. So what's the process for verification? And again, this process we will see for the rest of these principles that we're going to go through. You're using the same steps, but for different reasons. First, what you take the passage you're dealing with, and you kind of take it out of the loop. You've done your interpretation, now you're trying to check that interpretation, so you set that verse or that passage aside. 
And then you get out your concordance and you look up the issues that that passage deals with and see what the rest of the Bible says about those issues. Now, this can take some time. You're going to look up key words, you're going to look up ideas and all of that. You want to see what the rest of Scripture says about that issue. And once you have understood what, this, what Scripture as a whole says about that issue, then you can go ahead and bring the verse or passage in question back into the loop and apply what Scripture says to that passage, to your understanding of that passage. Because that, what that passage means has to be consistent with what the rest of Scripture says on that issue. That's the process. You want to be sure that your understanding of the passage is correct. So you have to find out what the rest of the Bible says about it. And then you go back to the verse in question, or the passage in question, and see if, if your understanding of the passage is consistent with what the rest of Scripture says. An example of that... We'll be, we'll be seeing uh, in a few minutes, but we'll go over it now as well. We already went over it once, way back before we started our series on hermeneutics. We did a little example with 1 John 1.9. You remember that? Yeah. Many people interpret 1 John 1.9 to refer to believers confessing their sin for salvation, their daily slips into sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They say that's, that refers to believers. So what you would do in this process is put that verse aside and look up in your concordance the key words like confession, forgiveness. Probably not believer, I don't think it's going to be. But... Um, the key words, okay, and see what the rest of Scripture says. How does the rest of Scripture relate confession and forgiveness? That can take some time. I did it. It takes time. I looked up all the uses of the word confession in the whole Bible. Wow. Old Testament and New Testament. There aren't that many. There are different meanings for confession, like it can mean to admit something. It can mean to support something. Okay. It can mean just to say something. And if you do that study, you will find that there is no verse in Scripture. Again, 1 John 1, 9 is taken out of the loop. So there is no verse in the rest of Scripture that says anything about believers confessing sin for salvation. It's not there which tells you that that understanding of 1 John 1.9 can't be accurate because whatever 1 John 1.9 means, it has to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. This is the way you test your interpretation. Does it match with Scripture, what the rest of Scripture says? Uh, a shorthand way of remembering that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, there has to be consistency. And we'll see that idea of consistency in some of these other principles as we go along. But that's the process for checking an interpretation. Any questions about that? So more about verification. Again, I mentioned on the previous slide, systematic doctrine will help you to check 
but you have to be careful with that. Uh, systematic theology may help verify the accuracy of an interpretation, but it is not a tool for interpretation. This relates to what we talked about before regarding progressive revelation. You cannot take what we know about God and use it to interpret an Old Testament passage because when they wrote that passage, they didn't know what we know about God. God hadn't revealed it yet. It's the same with systematic theology. You can't go backwards. Systematic theology is derived from biblical theology, but it does not clarify any given passage. We need to define some terms here. There are different kinds of theology. Biblical theology is theology as you find it, as you read scripture. You look up, you're, you're reading your Bible in your daily reading, whatever, and you notice this passage says something about the nature of God. Okay, well, that's biblical theology. That's where you find it as you find it. Systematic theology is based on that. We're going to go over the different uh, aspects of systematic theology in a minute. But imagine a piece of paper uh, with several columns, and at the head of each column, uh, or each column is headed with a part of, of, of uh, systematic theology, like theology proper, which is the nature of God, Christology, pneumatology. So you have columns, all right? So as you are reading the Bible, you come upon a verse and say, oh, that talks about the nature of God. John 4, 24. What does that say? God is spirit. That relates to theology proper. So on your list in the theology proper column, you would put John 4, 24. Then you're reading along and you find another verse that says something else about the nature of God. You put that verse in the column and you do that as you're reading through the whole Bible, you're filling up these columns with verses that talk about these different aspects of theology. So as you are reading and finding those aspects of theology, that's biblical theology. That's where you find it and as you find it. But the end result, after you have all those columns filled in, that's systematic theology. And it's kind of a shorthand. Because if you want to know about the nature of God, you don't have to start with Genesis 1-1 again. You've got all the verses listed there. So you could do a study on the nature of God from your theology text, systematic theology, all right? So if you're interpreting a particular text, it's going to have to be consistent with systematic theology. But you can't get out your sheet of systematic theology and use it to interpret a given passage. That's going backwards. That's like taking late revelation and trying to apply it to an earlier text. It doesn't work. So systematic theology can test your interpretation, but it can't clarify. It can't help you interpret. We'll see that some more as we go along. So biblical theology leads to systematic theology. Biblical theology, I want to say, is kind of random because it's just as it appears. Systematic theology is 
systematic. Everything's in place. In that sense, it's kind of artificial. But systematic theology does not lead to biblical theology. It doesn't go backwards. So to summarize this, systematic theology is a test for understanding, not a method of understanding. So you verify your interpretation of a passage by seeing what the rest of scripture says about that passage, and you can compare it as well to systematic theology to be sure it's consistent. But that's after you've already come up with your interpretation. Any questions about that? Well, I started definitions there. We define biblical theology as theology as you find it in Scripture. And systematic theology, where you systematize everything the Bible says about certain issues, theological issues. There is also um, denominational theology. Every denomination has its favorites, you know, and they emphasize this thing or that thing over practically everything else. There is uh, practical theology, theology as you apply it to your life and you put it into practice. So there are different kinds of theology. So we'll go into systematic theology. The first part is theology proper. Pastor Ecke is going over this in his Sunday night counseling session. His list is a little different from this one. This is the way I learned it in seminary. And these kind of go in a logical order, a descending order. So the first part is theology proper, which is the study of the nature of God. And then you have Christology, a study of the person and work of Christ. And then pneumatology, the study of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Angelology, the study of angels, including the devil and demons. That's called demonology. That's, demonology is kind of a subset of angelology because demons are fallen angels. Reminds me, there's a class in seminary, I forget what it was, probably church history. The teacher had lived most of church history. He, he, yeah, he knew all this stuff by heart. I, I walked by, he, he had MS and was in a wheelchair, and so he sat behind a table at the front of the room, and I walked by one day and just looked down at his notes, and they were written in ballpoint pen, and they were all smeared and smudged. <laughs> you know, they, they were probably 50 years old at the time. But he didn't need his notes. He knew it all. But anyway, he was calling roll one day at the beginning of class, and we're all answering, and he called a student's name, and as soon as he called a name, the student walked in the room. And so he looked up and said, oh, speaking of angels. And we all laughed because the idiom is, speak of the devil. And so he knew why we were laughing, and he looked at us slyly and said, well, angel covers a wide spectrum. <laughs> demons are angels. Uh, then you have anthropology, the study of man. Anthropos, the Greek word for man. Um, then homartiology, the study of sin. Homartia is the word for sin there. It's kind of the general word for sin, but it is also a specific kind of sin. It means to miss the target, like you're shooting at something and you miss. 
there are other words for sin. There's a word translated trespass. It means to sidestep. So you're on the path, but something knocks you off the path. That's a different kind of sin from hamartia. But hamartia is usually used as a general reference for sin. Then you have soteriology, the study of salvation, how that all works. And then ecclesiology, the study of the church. And you might, as a subset there, put in pastoral theology, the pastor's role that naturally fits under ecclesiology, how the church functions. And then finally, eschatology, the study of end times. Eschatos, the Greek word, means the end. So those are the different uh, aspects of systematic theology. So as you are interpreting a passage, you want to verify it. You want to compare, you know, whatever the passage talks about, whatever aspects of theology the passage mentions, you can go to the, excuse me, the systematic theology and see if your understanding fits what the rest of Scripture says about that theological issue. Any questions about that? So if you do this and you have everything in these columns and then you look at some of those scriptures and wait a second, they're not lining up, they're not being consistent even though you put something in the wrong column. That's one possibility. <laughs> the other, <laughs> well, the other possibility, looking at it from a hermeneutical point of view, if your interpretation of the passage doesn't agree with the list, then maybe the list is wrong, but maybe your interpretation is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So critical thinking. Look at it from all sides. Right. So we go to our next principle, that's induction. We have been talking about this principle all along, since we began. Okay. We just haven't talked about it in these specific terms. So we're going to define some terms here that will hopefully make everything else we've been talking about kind of fall into place. What ways have you heard the word induction used? Okay. New employees are inducted. In military as well. Electricity. Yeah. Okay. So it's used a lot of ways. What does the word mean? <laughs> I mean, just the word itself. If we take the word apart, what parts do we have there? Okay, we have the prefix in. Yeah. And the D-U-C is the root, it's the Latin word, and it means movement. Induct means to move into, generally speaking, based on the derivation of the word. It has that noun ending, the T-I-O-N, but the T could also be part of the root. Duct. What is a duct? Doesn't go quack. Yeah. You know, the only thing that duct tape doesn't seal is ducts. <laughs> they did a test, you know. It was great with sealing all kinds of things, but it wouldn't seal ducts. So what is a duct? It's Causeway or a conduit. Okay, conduit would be a synonym. We have air ducts, like for the air conditioning, they're all hidden. 
in this case. Yeah, it's a passage. You have aqueducts. There are ways of transporting a substance from one place to another. So the root word duct again means to move. Okay, so aqueduct, you're moving water, and air duct, you're moving air. Induct, you're moving into. There are two kinds of arguments, inductive arguments and deductive arguments. We talked about this before a couple of ages ago. With induction, you start with the facts and then draw conclusions based on the facts. A great example of an, uh, an excellent inductive argument is the Declaration of Independence. What was Jefferson's main point? Why did he write the Declaration of Independence? So his basic point is we need to separate from England. If he had put that right at the top of the page, how far would he have gotten in persuading people? <laughs> Probably not very far. A lot of people didn't want to separate from England. They had family there, they had history there. England was still supporting the colonies to one degree or another. So he was smart. He knew that he couldn't say, hey, we have to become our own nation. So what did he do? He started with the evidence. He listed all the problems they had had with England. He listed all the things they had tried to do to resolve those problems to no avail. England just turned a, a deaf ear to them, wouldn't listen. He says, this isn't right. He went back to nature and said basically people have a right to govern themselves it's a natural right and england is denying us that natural right we've had all these problems with them everything we've tried they have rejected so what's left for us to do to separate from england and become our own country when you approach it that way it's more reasonable it's not as shocking he was smart. But that's an inductive argument. A deductive argument starts with a conclusion and gives the evidence that supports it. With induction, you say that because this, this, this is true, and this is true, and this is true, and this is true, and this is true, <laughs> all the evidence, then you come to the conclusion that this is true. Your conclusion is true. But you have to be careful. You have to qualify it. You, you have to say this is probably true or likely true because you never know you might be missing some evidence and after listing all the evidence you say this is definitely true and somebody comes up and says i know a situation where it's not true then you're in trouble but if you've qualified it and somebody says that you can say well i said it's probably true <laughs> well seriously you got to take those precautions but with deduction, there's no room for guessing. If the evidence is true, the conclusion is true, it has to be true. With induction, as far as hermeneutics goes, you're starting with the evidence. And we get into the idea of exegesis versus eisegesis. 
We haven't used these terms yet, but that's kind of what we've been talking about all this time. So we'll define these. Exegesis, the EXE part means out of, and the GESIS part is Greek for text. So exegesis means out of the text. You derive the meaning from the text. That's objective. The text is out there, and you're getting the meaning from the text. Eisegesis, based on the Greek word ace, E-I-S, which means into. So eisegesis means into the text, which means you are inserting meaning into a text. That's subjective. That's coming from your own head. You're not getting the meaning in the text. You're putting a meaning in there. So let's say, I know a lot of times um, <clears throat> looking through things, you'll take a, uh, some of the tools that you've caused already with the historical evidence that might be there. There's interpretation of that information as well. So would, would be anything you're adding to it be eisegesis? Well, in this case, we're not dealing so much with that issue. We're dealing only with looking at what the text says, okay. yeah, not with outside stuff. So no outside sourcing, right? Just the text alone. Just the text alone. Okay. Yeah. But subjective basically means inside, so it's something that's coming from you. There's a philosophy out there called subjectivism, which says that reality exists only in each individual's mind. What you see out there is not really out there. It's in here. <laughs> I don't know how they can think that, but that's what they say. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of, of uh, Alice through the looking glass. The whole story is based on a chess game. And the white king is sleeping there, and Alice is talking to somebody. It might be the white queen, I forget who. And they, it, the other person suggests that they wake up the king or Alice suggests that, should we wake up the king? And the other person says, no, 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 no. Because he might be dreaming and we might be part of his dream. <laughs> if we wake him up, <laughs> we don't exist anymore. <laughs> That's kind of subjective. So the subjective approach basically is the allegorical, literal, literal, excuse me, or devotional approaches to interpretation that we talked about already. All of those approaches add meaning to the text. They don't get the meaning out of the text. It's all eisegesis. Exegesis, the only, the only system of interpretation that, that uses exegesis is the literal grammatical historical approach. Because the text is what it is, and you analyze it to get the meaning. We're out of time, so we'll finish up this a little bit here. An example of this would be how Jehovah's Witnesses handle certain scriptures, specifically Colossians 1, 15 and 16, and along with that, John 1, 3, and then uh, John 1, 14. We're not going to have, we don't have time to go into those, but if you want to study those for next week, we'll tear those apart and see how the Jehovah's Witnesses add meaning to the text. Of course, they're not the only ones who do this. It's about all, well, all cults do it. So, we're out of time. Any other observations or comments? Do you believe there's allegories in the Bible? 
there are allegories in the Bible, but you cannot interpret the Bible as an allegory. You cannot say the Bible says this, but it doesn't really mean this. It means this over here. Is that why you get in trouble if you say there's an allegorical passage in the Bible? Because you're saying it means something else. Well, the only the way you know that it's an allegorical passage is because the writer says it is. Yeah. In Galatians, Paul refers to Sarah and Hagar and their interaction way back there in Genesis and says this is an allegory of the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. So he's using that as a symbol. But he tells you that. So when you use that word there, you're not I'm saying that if you approach Scripture and see it as symbolic rather than literal, you're using an allegorical method and that's going to get you way off track. You are supplying a meaning that isn't in the text. It's what your meaning is as right. a human being, instead right. of what God's meaning is. Right. Well, that's subjective. And everybody's <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly that right. is the, the truth, absolutely. Except for that which is unexpected, but it changed. All right, let's uh, close in prayer.